Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Kelly Kidd and I. It's uh, August 6, 2019. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield College. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, let's start by asking, uh, why wine? Well, I was living in Venice Beach, California. I had been pursuing acting for about 10 years. Six of those years had been in Los Angeles. And I wasn't getting any closer to my goal of making it as an actor. Um, and so I just started putting it out there to the universe, if you will. <laughs> What's the next big thing? I, I loved acting. I loved being on stage. I loved being in front of the camera. But I didn't love the networking. I've never been good at networking. I'm something of an introvert, which I know sounds counterintuitive because being an actor, like I said, I'm fine on stage, but you get me in a room full of people where I'm supposed to network and make friends and I, I clam up. It's just not. I'm uncomfortable in those situations. I'm fine in a party of six or ten, but more than that, and it's not easy for me. So. I realized that what I needed to do in order to become a successful actor was not something that I was necessarily built for. So I started looking inward and looking outward and just really being open to what was going to feed me on a literal level mm -hmm. as well as an emotional level. Um, I've always been creative. Acting was a great creative outlet. And so I knew that whatever it was that I pursued, it had to have an element of creativity. Mm -hmm. So since I was acting, I was also waiting tables. <laughs> I was waiting tables at a really high-end restaurant in Santa Monica called Michael's. It's been there for, I think, 40 years now. Um, maybe more, probably more like 50. Anyway, it was a beautiful place to wait tables, but it was also uh, high-end, like I said, it was one of those places where you would show up an hour or two before service began to polish all the wine glasses and make sure the table was set just so. Mm -hmm. There was always uh, a number of specials being prepared. Mm -hmm. And every night, the sommelier would come out and open three or four bottles of wine and say, this is this wine. This is from this region. Mm -hmm. It's going to pair beautifully with this and this and this special. Now go out and sell it. <laughs> and it worked. We would sell the hell out of the wine. And it really opened my, my eyes to the wine world in general. I mean, up to that point, it was like Cabernet, Chardonnay, Merlot. You know, I, I thought more along lines of varietals, not regions. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea how vast the wine world was. And I really, I really appreciate the education that he gave us. His name is David Rossoff, and he's still in restaurants in Los Angeles. I think he has gone into partnership and owns a couple. Um, at any rate, at one point, we went into the Santa Barbara region, and we were standing in Brian Babcock's vineyard. And harvest was just about to happen. And 
he was standing in his vineyard looking at that fruit and we had been doing some barrel tasting and I thought this is it I I had a defining moment I wanted to make wine and David had been pulling a lot of corks on Oregon wine at the time and this was in 1998 mm -hmm. and I knew that the Oregon industry was young and I knew that if I stayed in California, just be more Disneyland, like I'd be facing probably a lot of the same challenges that I was facing in the acting world. And so I just very glibly told him I wanted to move to Oregon and make wine. And he said, okay, let me make some phone calls. <laughs> and he called, he called Shehalem and Willie Kenzie and they both said, sure, send her up for an interview. And my, my timing was right, this was in May. Mm -hmm. And so I interviewed at both Shehalem and Willie Kenzie, and um, Jimmy Brooks actually interviewed me. And he said, well, we'd love to have you as an intern. We can guarantee you two months work, but beyond that, you're on your own. Mm -hmm. So I said, great, I'll take it. So I went back to Venice, California, and proceeded to sell all my things packed up a U-Haul and moved a thousand miles north and started working September 1, 1998. Wow. And then when I decided to make this move, I kind of told myself, I'm just going to work my butt off and they're going to ask me to stay. I'm going to become invaluable. <laughs> and they did. They asked me to stay. Um, they were just, they had just hired a new vineyard manager, Di Crisp. And I made it very clear that I would love to work, stay on in whatever capacity. Mm -hmm. And so Di approached me and he said, do you want to work in the vineyard? And I said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I figured that's the best way to learn from the ground up. So they brought me into the vineyard. It was me and 12 Hispanic guys. Mm -hmm. I didn't speak much Spanish, a little kitchen Spanish, mm -hmm. but no field Spanish. And so, I worked shoulder to shoulder with those guys and earned their respect, showed up every day. And that was the winter of 98. And it was, so 98, 99, sideways rain. I think we had 45 days of sideways rain and it was like 30 degrees. And I was not making much money. So I was also waiting tables at Third Street Grill in McMinnville on the weekends. And it was the hardest I've ever worked, but it was also the best shape I've ever been in. You know, we were building deer fences when we weren't pulling brush or doing anything else that we needed to do. And then once the weather broke, they put me on a tractor, which was fantastic. There's something so empowering about driving a tractor. I felt like a total badass. And I have to say, the. I remember Di very clearly telling me, we're going to put you on a tractor because women are better tractor drivers. And it's because we're very methodical, we have an attention to detail, we're not out to impress anybody. So there are fewer, fewer accidents and fewer incidents and just, you know, in general, less damage to everything, the tractor and the crops. So spent the summer on the tractor. And then I think it was right around August, maybe about this time, uh, Di came to me and he said, 
I'm taking a different position. I'm going to Temperance Hill. I'm going to take over management there. It's closer to home because he was living, they still live mm -hmm. outside of um, Philomath yeah. on the Wren Vineyard. And, um, and he said, so I just wanted you to know. And I knew that my education would end. I mean, I had learned so much working under Die. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that whole position would shift and that I would just be a vineyard worker. And th no disrespect, they're amazingly hardworking people and as hard as I tried, I could never keep up with my coworkers. And they were always so gracious. They would get to the end of the row and I would be two thirds of the way down and they would come in and help me finish so that we could move forward together. But it wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't, I didn't want to be in the vineyard. I wanted to be in the cellar. So again, I glibly said to Di, well, hey, if you know of anybody who's looking for help, I'd love to get back in the cellar. And he says, all right, let me make some phone calls. <laughs> the next day he comes to me and he says, David Lett's looking for an assistant. Would you be interested in working for him? And I said, yes. So I interviewed with David and he hired me and I learned so much working for him. I've, much, of, much of what I do today is what I learned working for David. Mm -hmm. A lot of the way that I handle the fruit, make my picking calls, the vinification, much of it mm -hmm. is, I, I give him a lot of credit. I learned a lot from him. It was, it was such a gift to have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I, I really, really loved it. So I worked for David about a year and a half. And at the same time, Tori Moore at the time was on the same street as Irie. Mm -hmm. So um, Patty had left and they brought in Bob McGritchie as a consultant. Mm -hmm. And he would come down, he and David were old friends. So he would come down and, you know, about midday, hang out with David for a couple of hours, and he'd see me puttering about in the cellar. And he started asking David about me, and then at one point he said to David, well, do you, if you don't have enough work for Kelly, I could, maybe we could share her. And so at a certain point, I was working, you know, it really depended. Mm -hmm. I was at Tory Moore, I was at Irie, mm -hmm. wherever I needed to be. And then as harvest got closer, Bob approached me and he said, um, Don and Margie Olson are really impressed with you. They really like you. This is what we want to do. He said, I'm long in the tooth. I'm going to be retiring. What if you came and worked for us and we put you on salary and we paid for your education and, you know, but I didn't want to work for Tori Moore. I wanted to work for David. Let. Mm -hmm. So I went to David and I said, this is what they want. I don't know what to do. And he said, well, you know, I'm not even the winemaker here. The wine makes itself. And he always said that. Um, and you know, to, to a large extent, that's how I feel. I mean, the wine is made in the vineyard. And just as a sidebar here, you know, the work that the vineyard managers do and my husband in particular, Sterling Fox, I get all my fruit from him. He farms all the fruit that I get for all my clients. He has such a laser-like focus and is paying such keen attention to what's happening throughout the growing season that I always get the most beautiful sound fruit 
he even in really difficult vintages, mm. he makes me look good. He makes my job so easy. So, you know, there was some truth to what David was saying, but there was also a lot of his own style, and mm -hmm. there are definitely things that winemakers do in the cellar to make the vintage their own, depending on what their style is, what their focus is, what they wanna, how they want the wine to be represented at the end of the day in the glass. So, the Tory Moore proposition sounded too good to be true, and so I took it. <laughs> and I worked my ass off. It was the single most difficult vintage I've ever worked. And one of the interesting things that I would like to say here, so Willie Kenzie was my first harvest, and I think it was pretty typical. It was seven days a week. There were, you know, 12, 14. There were probably a couple of 16-hour days. Um, but they, they really tried to give people a day off at some point, and lunches were always provided. And then when I started working for David, his motto was 12 hours, and it'll be here tomorrow. And it's just wine. And there were so many times during harvest when he would literally shut the lights out on me. Like, kid and I, go home. It's 12 hours. It'll be here tomorrow. And then I go to Tory Moore, and there were a couple of things at play. One of them was, um, and this is one of those points where I might later say, let's take that out. Okay. Sure. Um, Joe Dobbs. So, like two months after I said yes to Bob's proposal, mm -hmm. he left mm -hmm. and went to North Carolina and started up a, a community college enology course mm -hmm. there. So that kind of took me completely by surprise and I'm standing there thinking, well, what does this mean if he's gone? And then they brought Joe Dobbs in as a consulting winemaker, mm -hmm. which seemed fine and well. I. I had heard of Joe. He had a good reputation. I thought at least my education will continue because that's really what I was all about. Was, And I was still on salary and there was still this promise of school, paying for the education. Okay. So then all of a sudden there's this woman showing up who they're saying is my boss and it was Kelly Stearns who is now Kelly Fox. And I'm still wondering, okay, What's happening here? Now the good news is, Joe was great, got along with Joe, and Kelly and I had a great time. We, we saw the, the same kind of juvenile humor in things, so we laughed a lot. But that first day of harvest, um, Joe thought that our three-ton press was a seven-ton press, and he brought in 21 tons of Pinot Blanc, with the understanding being that we were gonna stay there and press, and we did. So my first day of harvest at Tory Moore was a 36-hour day. And I remember at 7 in the morning, we'd loaded our last press load, and Kelly comes out with a MGD Miller. And to this day, it's the best beer I've ever had. <laughs> that was brutal. And then, I mean, we literally went home for six hours 
and then came back and started all over. We were understaffed. There were 75 fermenters in that winery. We had, we had fermenters outside on the asphalt because mm -hmm. it it's a dead end street there. And the inside was packed and we didn't have enough interns and I would just punch down, punch down. And I would finish punch downs and I would start <laughs> again. And then at the, and, and Joe wanted a lot of lab work done that Kelly was doing. And it just was, there was no way we were ever gonna catch up. And I remember at the time I was living about seven minutes from work. And at one point he wanted this heating copper plate moved every six hours. So during the night I was coming in and moving it. I mean, it was, it was insane and it was stupid. And I will never, and I haven't ever worked harvest like that again. It was really, it was such a great education. It wasn't quite the education I was looking for, but it was definitely an education in, in what and how and what's important. And do you really need to kill yourself to get it done? And the answer is no. So harvest is finally over. We're, it's like a week before Thanksgiving and Don Olson calls me in and it's the first day off I've had in eight weeks. I mean, we, there was no time off. Mm -hmm. We just went and went and went and went. And he sits me down and I'm thinking, great, he's gonna, first of all, he's gonna give me a bonus because they weren't, they were only paying me 25,000 a year, which is not much. Um, and at the, in the hours that I was working, I did the math, I was making about $3.25 an hour. So because, and it was very clever, because paying me salary, they didn't have to pay overtime. So, so I'm thinking he's gonna give me a nice bonus and we're gonna talk about school. Mm -hmm. And the very first thing he said to me, and again, this is like mid-November, he says, why aren't you in school? And I said, well, because I was doing harvest. I mean, school started right after Labor Day and here we are mid-November, there was no way I could even register for classes. I mean, my first day off was today and I'm here. <laughs> and it, that wasn't acceptable to him. And, and he basically did this really curious and just heartbreaking character assassination about how I wasn't living up to my end of the deal. And, and I realized about halfway through that he was looking for a reason to let me go. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I needed to exercise my options. So I went home and I called Di. <laughs> and I said, I don't know what to do. And he very wisely said, maybe you should think about going to school. I said, yeah, maybe I should. So that reminded me of a conversation that I had overheard. And I want to say that I had overheard it. It was at some industry function. And I think I was there, I might have been there representing Irie. Or maybe it was Tori Moore, it doesn't matter. I was at an industry function and I overheard Lynn Penner-Ash talking to I don't even know who she was talking to. She was talking to a group and I was 
basically eavesdropping. I think it was like two or three other people. And she was talking about how she had just been to Steamboat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Steamboat is that, that wonderful industry um, gathering where winemakers get together and they discuss their their flaws and you know their successes and their failures and one of the great things about the Oregon wine industry in general is it's so collaborative and so you can call your fellow winemakers with questions and problems and nine times out of ten you're going to get some help mm -hmm. it's fantastic so they're at Steamboat and they're tasting a winemaker's wine. He's on her left, and then, you know, it's a round table. And so she smells and tastes this wine, and she turns to him and she says, There's a little bread in here, isn't there? A little Britannomyces, a little spoiled cheese. And he says, No, there's no bread in here. Winemaker on her right, another man, leans across her and says, A little bread in here, huh? And he says, Yeah, you think so? <laughs> and I heard that, and I thought, Okay, so as a female, trying to get into this boys club, I can either stay in the field and become a winemaker by learning and doing, which many, many winemakers have done, or I can get my degree and become a winemaker in four years. And the wiser part of me understood that having that piece of paper was going to make all the difference. Mm -hmm. You know, in other words, when and if I found myself in that situation, I could question, where's your minor in chemistry? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, if, if I wanted to. <laughs> but I had to have that minor in chemistry in order to do that. So I decided to go to school. I went to Oregon State. And while I was at Oregon State, um, thanks to Di, hooked up with Barney Watson and worked in the wine lab for him and then also worked for him at a, his little winery, Tai. Mm -hmm. So I was still getting my chops, getting the experience, learning as much as I could. Um, and then my junior year, when I started school, I made a promise to myself that I would do an internship in Burgundy. Mm -hmm. I, I knew that it was probably going to be my last best chance to do it. So um, with Barney's help, I hooked up with a, a great facility, Chartrand et Trebuchet, in Poulini. And my junior year went and worked Harvest, which was another just brilliant experience. Mm -hmm. And you know, again, much of what I learned there um, I use in the production of my Chardonnay. So, graduated and then um, started working at Lemelson. It was my dream job. Just so happened, Eric had decided, Eric Lemelson had decided he would be the winemaker and he needed an enologist. And so, joined on, that was 2005, which was a particularly difficult vintage. Um, wet, lots of uh, botrytis. Mm -hmm. But it was great. Um, unfortunately, Eric decided to make wine by committee, which I don't think is possible. <laughs> so he brought in a consulting winemaker named C.P. Lim, 
from New Zealand, who's, he's Chinese, but raised in New Zealand and was a winemaker, making wine in New Zealand. Actually, I'm not sure where he was raised, but he was blind. Mm -hmm. And so he brings in CP and that, it was, it was another one of those situations where I fell into this incredible opportunity to learn. Since CP couldn't see, everything of course was by all of his other senses. Mm -hmm. And he taught me how to judge the ripeness of fruit by feeling and by the texture of the seed and the texture of the skins and how easily the seed releases from the membrane that's around the seed. And he had this fantastic idea that um, we should pop the heads off of new French oak barrels and distem into those and ferment in those. So really small, very, very small lot. You can get maybe um, like 700, oh, maybe about 500 pounds, five to 600 pounds mm -hmm. into a barrel. Mm -hmm. So really small lot fermentation. And Eric loved the idea. So we popped the heads off of 24 brand new French oak barrels and distemmed into those. And I took personal care of them. And, but I'll never forget coming in at like seven in the morning and CP, who's not a small man, is in his tidy whities and nothing else, but stomping in the barrels and just kind of moving. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those things that can't be unseen. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, the wines that came from those barrel ferments were so beautiful. And just the entire process was so amazing and fascinating to me that it was very inspiring and I, I loved it. Mm -hmm. So February of that year, um, Actually, I guess it was in January. Sterling had just started working with the Dukes, mm -hmm. Dukes Family Vineyards outside of Amity. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he was going to be doing a lot of vineyard development for them. They had vineyard that had been planted. I want to say it was planted in 2000 by someone else. And then the owner was selling the property and the vineyard and the Dukes came and bought it. And so he wanted to take them tasting to specific places and he knew that I could we could do barrel tasting for them which is not every not something that everybody will do mm -hmm. and so he brought them and met them and um, we were doing some barrel tasting and the wines were still very young this is January things hadn't necessarily gone through malolactic but the barrel ferments were so complete they were just so beautiful and ethereal that when we had tasted everything else I said I want you to try this this is something that we did it was so amazing and we tasted the barrel ferments and Pat said to me if I gave you a ton of fruit would you do this for me and I said absolutely and so 2006 I did a very small bottling for Duke's Family Vineyards two barrels and the uh, the Nipple Hill Pinot Noir was born. So February of 2006, Eric comes to me. I'm in the lab working away, and he comes in and he says, 
I've made a decision that affects you, unfortunately. He said, I'm firing myself and hiring a winemaker. I've realized that I'm not a good winemaker and that I should let a professional do the job. Um, and he said, but unfortunately, that makes you redundant because we already have an assistant winemaker and whoever I hire would do what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I petitioned hard to have him hire me as his winemaker, but he didn't feel I was ready. So I started sending my resume out, actually um, called Rick Maffitt to see if he had any leads. Mm -hmm. Of course, I called Di. Mm -hmm. And um, Rick said, actually, there's a, a place outside of Amity called Left Coast Cellars, and they're looking for an assistant winemaker. Are you interested? And I said, sure, it's definitely worth a conversation. So I met with Luke and um, Luke McCollum, who was the winemaker at the time, and Suzanne Pfaff and Bob Pfaff, and um, got the job. And so 2006, I'm out at Left Coast Cellars. Things are going great. We're about three days into harvest. And Luke, who had been pushing himself really, really hard, he, he suffered like a little bit of a mental breakdown due to exhaustion mm -hmm. and was out of the picture. So I made the wines. Um, and then about three weeks after harvest was over, Luke came back. And it was a little frustrating to me the way the whole thing was handled. Bob and Suzanne were great. Um, they did give me a really nice bonus for kind of rising to the challenge. The wines were beautiful. I really loved it. And more than anything else, it kind of solidified for me that I was definitely ready mm -hmm. to be a winemaker. Mm -hmm. Um, but the fact that Luke came back, and I think Luke had a little bit of a hard time with me just because I had seen him in this really vulnerable moment, and so things were never really quite right. And I felt like I had a lot of responsibility, but I wasn't really being paid mm -hmm. for what I was doing, and I also didn't feel like I was getting the credit that I should be getting for what I was doing. So I started looking. Um, 12th and Maple had just opened. I think they had two harvests. Maybe they were three harvests in. But they were probably about, I would say, a fifth of the size that they are now. And Aaron was looking for a winemaker. So I talked to him, got the job. I told him I was going to be bringing in two tons of fruit for Dukes. They loved what I did in 2006, and they wanted to move forward. So in 2007, we did two tons of fruit of these barrel ferments. Um, worked at 12th and Maple, large-scale production. They had me on what they call the ultra-premium side, which is all the small lots. Mm -hmm. But still, it was like nothing I had ever seen before. And I would often go over to the um, super premium side and work in those, in those massive tanks. And again, I just, I learned so much. I remember, I was probably three years in, so I hadn't even, I think I was just about to start school, talking to my mother on the phone and telling her, every step 
I make just seems to be the right one. And I said, if I had had this kind of luck, even though I don't really believe in luck, I kind of feel like you, you make your own luck. Um, but I, I told her, if, if I had had this kind of reaction and interaction when I was trying to make it as an actor, I'd have Oscars <laughs> now. So this is obviously what I meant to do. It just, every step of the way, it just felt right. Mm -hmm. So I worked at 12th and Maple for two vintages. And then in um, the Dukes had had Gary Andrus making all of their wine for them. And then in 2007, so their first vintage was 2005. So he made their 2005 and their 2006, with the exception of the little Nipple Hill bottling that I did for them. And then in 2007, he became too ill to finish their wines. Mm -hmm. So they came to me and asked me if I could finish their wines. And I said, absolutely. So we brought them in to 12th and Maple. And in 2008, I became their full-time winemaker. I quit at 12th and Maple and started my little business, KK Wine Co. And at that time, I also started making wine for Trout Lily Ranch, which is Peter and Carol Adams. And they used to be Adams Vineyard. And Carol Adams, I believe, is the first female winemaker in Oregon. She was making wine um, under their label, and they were doing about, I want to say 500 cases, maybe more, in Portland. Um, and I think it was in, from 79 to 84. And then they started having children, and she just decided that she wanted to focus on that, and the fruit was being bought by Rex Hill at the time. So, in 2008, Sterling had been farming their vineyard for them for several years at that point. Mm -hmm. um, and Peter had expressed some interest in maybe having a little wine made. And so Sterling said, well, Kelly can make a little wine for you. So I started making, they changed their name to Trout Lily Ranch because I believe when, um, when Rex Hill started buying the fruit, they bought the name or something like that. There's something, something came up where they couldn't call themselves Adams mm -hmm. anymore. So Trout Lily Ranch, and so I had two little clients. I had Dukes, I had Trout Lily Ranch, and of course, Sterling and I have a little vineyard, so we had a little Mad Violets going at 12th and Maple. And uh, so 2008 and 2009 were made at 12th and Maple, and then it was, since I had gone from working there and being a winemaker, it is an, a custom crush facility which means that as an outside winemaker, I couldn't physically do the work. Mm -hmm. And I remember those two years, I would be, you, you had to send a work order and they had to have it 24 hours in advance. And I remember standing by my fermenter and texting or emailing the, my winemaker saying, I want this pump over done and I'd like it done in the next hour. And then I would just skulk about. It's like, <laughs> can, and I would find him. It's like, so what do you think? Can, can we do that, please? Could you, could you do me a solid here? And I just realized that I couldn't, I couldn't be 
a hands-off winemaker. I couldn't be a virtual winemaker. Mm -hmm. I couldn't be in my pajamas sending work orders. It was too crazy making. So 2010 moved everybody to the Carlton Winemaker Studio, which was a really interesting move. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was great to have control, and it was so frustrating having to share my toys. There's, there was so much, and I think it's ongoing. I mean, there's just this, like, mm -hmm. you know, and I remember, and, and we did it. We would hide things in the closet so that it would be there when we needed it. You couldn't, everything took three times longer because nothing was ever put back because everybody was using it mm -hmm. at the same time. And while there was a lot of camaraderie and people definitely worked hard to work together because we all understood that yes, mm -hmm. there are limited resources and yes, we're all gonna want in the press at the same time. And the, you know, there were different production managers and GMs over the years. They all worked really hard to make it as smooth running as possible. Mm -hmm. So it's great for what it is, but it's definitely, it definitely has its challenges. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I appreciated having a place to go. Uh, I did, the Dukes, we brought in our own tanks just so that we would have the vessel that we wanted. And then we would, of course, use studio tanks as well. But it was just another, another really awesome learning experience. And again, it was one of those situations where if you were experiencing something that perhaps you hadn't seen before, there was Andrew Rich, like, Andrew, have you ever seen this before? Talk about it, you know? Um, there was always a great, just always a great sense of community, which I think is part of the the appeal and part of what keeps it going so strong. And and it's a really great facility to have in the valley to help with those things. Um, so I was there for six years, and then the Keelers approached me and asked me if I would bring my production to them. And I did. I was there 16, 17, and 18. And in the meantime, the only client who did not go to Keeler was the Dukes. And meanwhile, my business is growing. By the time I moved to Keeler, I was up to 200 tons, which is, I mean, in the scheme of things, small <laughs> potatoes. But it's my little company. I mean, it was great. Um, so, moved to Keeler, and in the meantime, Dukes was busy building out their facility. So the first vintage that we made at Dukes, for Dukes, was the 2017. Um, seriously, Pat is amazing. He, he, he wants the best, and so he goes for the best. And one of the things that I so appreciate about him is he trusts, he trusts us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a little overwhelming when he first said, what equipment do you want? I mean, I, every place I'd ever worked, it was already there. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't have a choice. It's like, this is the press, these are the pumps. Mm -hmm. And so I, 
I was a little overwhelmed because winery equipment is not cheap. Asked a lot of questions. Um, I'd had enough experience that I knew what I wanted. And so I bought exactly what I wanted. And what's amazing is it's, it's like driving a Cadillac. <laughs> I, making wine there is a dream. And it's crazy because I forget sometimes how long I've been here and how hard I've worked to get mm -hmm. to where I'm at. Mm -hmm. And I kind of have to remind myself because otherwise I don't feel like I deserve it somehow. <laughs> it's really crazy. Mm -hmm. So um, in 2000, the beginning of 2019, the Keelers and I split, parted ways, and I moved everybody out to Andante which is another beautiful brand new facility. Last year was the first year of production there. And same thing, they said, Kelly, what do you need? What should we buy? And they bought exactly what I asked for. And it's just, I mean, I think it was Dai. I think it was Dai who said, he would say all the time, it's all about the tool. You have to have the right tool. You can get the job done with the right tool. And I have all the right tools. Mm -hmm. And I just make wine for the most amazing people and from these beautiful vineyards. And I just really feel like um, I've landed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's quite a journey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, and now you're, all, now you're all spoiled and you have all the equipment you want. So it's great. It's easy. <laughs> easy street. Tell me about working for a number of different clients like that, each with their own kind of desire, expectation, ideal taste of a, of a wine, and, and how you balance that with what you do and, and keeping them all unique and separate. Well, I have to say, the thing, just general, general statement, the thing that definitely keeps all of the brands separate and unique is the vineyard source, mm -hmm. where I'm getting the fruit from. There are distinct differences between Jehala Mountains, Eola Amity, and now uh, the Van Duzer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's so fun for me to see what these different sites bring. And having worked with them now, as long as I have been, mm -hmm. they're so distinctive. I'm fairly certain, please don't test me on this, but I'm fairly certain that I could pick out any of them, any of the wines that I make in a blind tasting, mm -hmm. just from what I'm picking up in the complexities. Mm -hmm. um, different clients, I, I definitely am asking them, what do you want? What are you looking for? Um, Carol Adams decided a couple of years ago that she wanted to make Sauvignon Blanc, and she had tasted this French producer's Sauvignon Blanc that she wanted to emulate. And so we did the research, and we now are fermenting their Sauvignon Blanc in acacia barrels, mm -hmm. which I had never even considered before. So I may, and they're sourcing their fruit from the Croft Vineyard, but they have recently planted and they've grafted over some of the Adams Vineyard to Sauvignon Blanc. And one of the great things that we got when we got the Croft fruit, because Carol and Chansey and Peter are old friends, mm -hmm. because that's really highly sought 
Sauvignon mm -hmm. Blanc. So for us to get a ton of that was quite the coup. And I remember when we first started talking to Chansey about it, he said, oh, we have this, we have a couple of rows of Semillon. Do you want that too? And I said, yes. So we're doing this co-ferment, you know, it's like a, just a kiss of Semillon and Sauvignon Blanc that we barrel ferment mm -hmm. in acacia oak. Mm -hmm. And it's so distinctly different from the Sauvignon Blanc that I've been making for Andante since 2013, I think, was the first vintage I made Sauvignon Blanc for them. Um, because that's all stainless. So mm -hmm. that's really interesting. I will say that the first, the first imprint, so the Sauvignon, the Sauvignon Blanc that I make for Andante, I knew what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I made. And luckily for me, they love it. So that style has stuck. Um, Pat is very clear about what he likes. Mm -hmm. He likes whole cluster. So there's a percentage of whole cluster in every lot. He likes um, a little more new oak than the rest of my clients. It's very funny though, the very first year that I made wine for him, so 2008, when I was in charge of the whole vintage, all of these new barrels kept showing up at 12th and Maple for Dukes. And I was like, oh, okay, that's great, that's fine, whatever. So at the end of harvest, everything's in barrel, and um, the Dukes come to barrel taste, and he sees all of this empty new wood, and he's like, oh, I'm surprised that you didn't use all the new oak. And I said, oh, I didn't know you wanted me to. <laughs> because I'm not a big high percentage of new oak. And he had been like at 85, 90% new oak because that's what Gary liked. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I'm sorry, I dialed it way back. You're only at like 40% new wood. And I said, but the good news is you don't have to spend as much money next year for new barrels. <laughs> and he loved what I did. And a couple of years later, I said, do you want me to bring it back up to 80%? We can bring in some heavy toast and toasted heads. And he's like, I, I love the direction you've taken the wine. Let's keep it like this, which was a huge compliment. And it made me very happy. But it's, you know, when I think back on it, I just, it cracks me up that I just had the, the nerve to just, oh, okay, well, I'm not going to use all that new oak, so <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> and I just did what I wanted. And generally speaking, that's what I do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always asking them, I'll ask my clients, the stems on this lot are tasting great. What do you think? The whole cluster or no? Mm -hmm. And most of the time they say, if you like it, do it. My, my approach is hands-off. Like I said, Sterling delivers beautiful fruit. All I really have to do is babysit and, you know, get it in the bottle. And so there's not a lot of manip manipulation happening on my end. Um, my goal is to capture a moment. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for the vintage in the vineyard in the glass. And so my attitude is the less I do, the better chance I have of achieving that goal. Tell me why that's important to you as a winemaker. Why is that sort of the, the vintage expressing itself? What you're, why is that what you're going for versus some, some other goal? Because I think it's more interesting that way. And I think that 
it tells more of a story. I think it's, I think it's great when you are tasting a 13 and, and you remember that that was, that was the year of the typhoon, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And what we went through, I mean, I'll never forget running, literally running through the vineyards with Sterling three days before that two inches that became six inches of rain came. And you know, it's like touching the clusters and tasting the fruit. It's like, well, can this hold? Can this handle two inches of rain? And if not, let's bring it in. And so we brought in what wouldn't and let the rest hang. And all the fruit that he brought in was sound and beautiful. And I, the day after the rain, I went to a vineyard that a client of mine was purchasing fruit from, and it wasn't a vineyard that Sterling farms. And I remember running through that vineyard with Sterling before the rain and asking them to please bring it in, and they said that they couldn't. And the fruit was melted. I mean, it just, and the, the, the fruit flies and the wasps and you could smell the acetic acid. I mean, it was happening. It was so compromised. And I was terrified that that was what the vintage was going to be. Mm. And it wasn't. 13 is one of my favorite vintages. Mm. And so, you know, to have that frame of reference and then to taste that wine and to know that all of that hard work and that care and concern, it's in there. Mm -hmm. There, there is an art, definitely, to creating the same wine every year. But it's not an art that I'm interested in. It's, it's an art that I respect, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm not really interested in that. I'm much more interested in kind of painting a new picture every year mm -hmm. with the fruit that I get. And, and so as you're looking for clients or as clients are looking for you, what are you looking for in someone who hires you as a winemaker? What do you hope they're looking for? For from you? Well, I hope what they're looking for from me is my ability and my skill. Mm -hmm. And I also hope that they're coming to me because they've tried the wines that I've made and they like what I do. Mm -hmm. um, they have to trust me and they can't be jerks. <laughs> no jerks. I'm really lucky. I don't, I don't make wine for any jerks. <laughs> and so, uh, I can't what I was going to ask. So we're going to go ahead and pause that because I don't remember what I was going to say. So we'll just <laughs> skip that part. Um, what is it that's so special then about Oregon Pinot Noir? I think that it's, I think it's the climate and I think it's the dirt. And the fact that we have all of these wonderful different soil types. Um, I also, one of the things that I think is really great that we still have and share is kind of that pioneering spirit. You know, I feel like everybody who's here is still feels like they're learning and has, has something to learn. And there are no averages with respect to vintages. I mean, I've been here since 98 and there's no two summers are the same. There's just no, I mean, you can say, well, it's a little bit like 14, but then, but it's also kind of like 12. And, and so it's just, to me, 
it's always exciting and challenging to see what you're going to get, to see what the growing season is going to give you. Um, one of the one of the most challenging vintages for me on a kind of emotional level was 2010. Mm -hmm. I call 2010 the never summer because I swear that it didn't break 80 more than six times and every other day it was cold and wet. And so I was on this emotional roller coaster. <laughs> when the sun would come out, it's like, best vintage ever, this is gonna be amazing. And then the next day, there'd be this, you know, inversion and it'd be misty and cold all day long and I would think it's never gonna ripen. We're not making wine this year. What's happening? And then when it when the fruit came in, it was the most beautiful fruit I'd ever seen, but there wasn't very much of it because mm -hmm. it was a cold, wet spring mm -hmm. and our fruit set was really poor. And I still think that the 2010 is a vintage to have, mm -hmm. to like covet and lay down and cherish I think it's I think it's an amazing vintage so after that I realized that Oregon's gonna produce even on a never summer mm -hmm. a never summer vintage makes beautiful wine and so I don't stress it anymore and I remember working with Di early on and I would freak out about everything and Di would say don't stress it don't be such a stress cookie. <laughs> Relax. Chill out. It's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. And it is. Mm -hmm. It's fine. So I kind of love the fact that Oregon always pulls through, but you never know what you're going to get. So it keeps you on your toes. I mean, you can't take anything for granted. You have to be prepared. Mm -hmm. And I just think that the climate and the, the soils really make for beautiful wines. Mm -hmm. I love the similarities that we share with Burgundy, but I also love the differences. Mm -hmm. You talked about starting Mad Violets in, in 2008. Tell me a little bit about uh, the decision to start your own thing amidst everything else you were doing and also, of course, the story behind the name. So, Sterling was making wine in the garage before we got together. He would always have a couple of barrels going because harvest is like Christmas for Sterling <laughs> and he's always finding puppies and he has to bring them all home <laughs> and so he managed to get his hands on and I think he might have even purchased it from Oregon State a hundred years ago mm -hmm. and it's just this teeny tiny distemmer that I call the master macerator because it's hysterical it just it just chews the crap out of the fruit and so all you get is this this mucky pulp in the bin so he would do that he would you know chew up the fruit through this distemmer and then ferment it and fill the house with fruit flies and then fill his barrels and so he he started doing that I want to say his first vintage was 2002 mm -hmm. and then we got together in 2004 um, and I think it might have been, it might have been the 2004, maybe it was the 2000, I don't know, some vintage. His, one of his oldest and dearest friends is Jason Tosh. Mm -hmm. And 
Jason would come over and help him with things like bottling or what have you. And his two daughters, Sterling's daughters, Madeline and Violet, would always be running around outside, um, generally naked, because they loved to be naked, and they were in the country, and we have some amazing pictures of them, just small and naked. <laughs> anyway, in the vineyard, you know, eating fruit, and <laughs> so cute. So they're running around outside, and he and Jason are trying to get work done, and he wants the girls to help, and he keeps yelling, Mad, Violet, Mad, Violet, get in here and help me. And Jason says, that's what you should call the wine, Mad Violets. And so Mad Violets was born. So, 2007, so we got together in 2004, I was finishing school, I moved in in 2005, started my, um, was working at Lemelson, and then 2006, I think, I seem to remember him bringing some fruit, I think we made like a barrel or something at Lemelson. And so, of course, we were calling it Mad Violets. And then 2007, at 12th and Maple, he brought some Gris and some Pinot Noir. We, we literally made two barrels, like 50 cases of Pinot Noir and 50 cases of Pinot Gris. And 2008 was the year that we put a label. We hired a designer and put a label on it. And Sterling was so proud and so excited that he gave all the wine away. <laughs> and so I told him, this is a terrible business model. <laughs> this is not the way we can do this moving forward. If we're going to do this, we have to get serious. And like I said, harvest is Christmas. Mm -hmm. And so daily during harvest, he will call me and say, honey, this vineyard's picking heavy. There's an extra ton. Can, can we keep it? And I finally learned how to say no, um, but you know we've grown the we've grown to like a thousand cases, which is a lot. It's so much fun to grow and make, and it's really hard to sell. I mean, it it's not hard to sell because of the quality. It's just, it just takes energy, mm -hmm. and we both have full time jobs, mm -hmm. so you know, it's our it's our little labor of love and. I like to call it the third child that we had together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and it's definitely that. Yeah. It's, it takes a lot of attention and a lot of money and uh, and you hope someday it will love you back. <laughs> Take care of you in your old age. Right. <laughs> right. So what kind of wine are you making for, with this label? Is it is does it is there a, a year to year is it the same or is it basically just the puppies that come home from Sterling? Well, it's kind of it's kind of a mix. So we have um, we have our Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, which is a blend of vineyards. Yes, all of the puppies. Um, and then we have our Mantis Reserve, which is our favorite barrels. So that's a much smaller bottling. Um, he has been farming for the marshes in the Dundee Hills for ever. And several years ago, he. I don't know. I don't know what the deal is, but we started getting in 2011. We started getting the Riesling that was planted in 1970, and so I've been making Riesling from that site since then. Um, not since 1970, but since 2011. <laughs> and then um, Chardonnay, 
we were getting the ex novo chardonnay for 14 15 13 14 and 15 and then in 16 we started getting Dupy valley chardonnay but our pinot gris that was planted in 89 was phylloxerated one acre so i was making gris from our vineyard and we always get pinot noir from our vineyard mm -hmm. But the phylloxera lens had grown and it was producing less and less. So after 2016, we pulled the Pinot Gris out and we're going to plant that to Chardonnay. And we're gonna do uh, like the French style Massal blend. So mm -hmm. it'll be nine clones because nine is my favorite number. Sterling has found nine clones of Chardonnay. <laughs> and it's all gonna be interplanted. Mm -hmm. And we will, in about four years, be making Chardonnay from our own vineyard. So, yeah, it's the two Pinot Noirs, Chardonnay, Riesling, and we still have some 15 Gris that we're moving through. Interesting. Yeah. And you mentioned the label. Tell me about your, your, your current label and how that came about. The Mad Violets label? Mm -hmm. um, well, when we decided to go commercial, we all tried our hand well, I tried my hand. I, I, one of the ways that I saved my sanity when I was living in Venice was I, I had a garage that I had turned into an art studio, and so I would glue found objects together. I would do assemblage mm -hmm. art. Mm -hmm. And so when we were trying to figure out our label design, I did a little kind of cut paper assemblage, but Sterling didn't love it. And then Violet, who's actually an amazing artist, she, she tried her hand. And it's funny because this was, so she's 22 now, and this was way back in 2007. So her version of Mad Violets, she drew two um, anthropomorphized violet people, a husband and a wife. And the husband is visibly drunk, <laughs> and the wife is visibly angry. <laughs> and that was her idea of a wine label. I said, oh, no, no, I don't think the TTP is going to go for that. So I had a friend who I was working with at 12th and Maple who was starting his own label. And one day I saw him in the conference room talking to, to another guy, having a meeting. And then it wasn't a week later, he's got 12 different versions of label ideas from this one meeting with this designer. And so I asked him for his contact, and his name is Chris Noud. He's with Head for Design. Mm -hmm. And so Sterling and I sat down, and Sterling said, I said, elegant, whimsy. And Sterling said, Alice in Wonderland, through the looking glass. Because, you know, we wanted something kind of fanciful, but elegant, mm -hmm. with some whimsy. Mm -hmm. Mad Violets. Mm -hmm. And he just, what he came up with is beautiful. There are a couple of really nice Easter eggs on the label. There's a praying mantis head that you kind of have to look for. Um, and Sterling, Sterling likes to say that the praying mantis is our favorite insect because everybody has a favorite insect. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> but it never occurred to me that I could have a favorite insect. So it's Sterling's favorite insect. and. For me, the praying mantis is such an ethereal beauty and so mystical and magical. And 
if you see one in nature, or if you run into one in the vineyard, they kind of take your breath away. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's on the label. And that's why we call our reserve mantis, because I really want it to take your breath away. Um, it's also a beneficial insect. You want them around. And the females are badass. <laughs> that is true. They, they are that. Another really cool story on the label is when I was researching to make sure no one else was calling their wine mad violets, um, I learned that there is a defunct band from the 70s that called themselves the Mad Violets, mm -hmm. but it's also the name of a wildflower that grows in the valley. There really is a Mad Violet. There really is a Mad Violet, um, the shooting star, and they, they bloom in early April, and so we found some in a field near our home, and we took a picture, and then Violet did her artist rendering and the designer put it on the label. So we have Violet's art on the label. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> I really love it. Yeah. At the very beginning, you talked about how you you wanted to make sure whatever you did after acting was, was creative. You wanted the creative element. So tell me about the creative element and how it plays out in, in your work now, and in, in winemaking in general, or in just sort of in day-to-day -day running of a winery. Well, I think, I think in winemaking, it's interesting because it's a really beautiful balance of art and science. Um, I definitely, I'm definitely using the science degree mm -hmm. daily, mm -hmm. but I'm also using my senses. You know, mm -hmm. it's very important that I'm paying attention to how things are smelling and tasting and, and looking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things with respect to the art, one of the things that I have opted for is extended barrel aging. Mm -hmm. My Pinots are in barrel for 18 months. Mm -hmm. um, Chardonnay's in barrel for 14 months. And that is a stylistic, artistic decision. Mm -hmm. When I have complete control, there's less oak. It's more toward 35, 40% mm -hmm. new on both the Pinot and the Chardonnay. Um, you know, there are other things that I do to really kind of put my kind of, that I guess are adding my flourishes. Mm -hmm. With the whites, I do a lot of lees stirring during primary fermentation. I do um, spontaneous, I grow up my own starter cultures for the whites, I'll pull about five gallons out of a press pan and put that in a warm place and get that growing, get that fermenting. Mm -hmm. And as long as I like the way it smells, then I pitch it into the big tank. Um, you know, the, the reds, I let them come up ambiently. I'm, I'm just taking care as to how I handle them. A lot more pumping over than punching down. At Duke, since we do a percentage of whole cluster, I'm stomping. I'm getting in there. We're, we're treading mm -hmm. on the fruit, mm -hmm. you know, those types of things. Mm -hmm. How long um, I'll settle things. I drain and press on taste because there's that whole tannin structure. There's this bell curve. It reaches a sweet spot and then it's time mm -hmm. to call it. I, I guess I consider all of those things 
kind of my art, where, where the art's coming in, but again, it's backed up by the science. Picking, calling the pick and learning, the more time I spend with different vineyards, I've changed that. Mm -hmm. I'm picking a little earlier in some sites and in some blocks than I did before. Just, you know, so using the history to learn what kind of picture I want to paint this year. Mm. I'm always going for the balance between the, the alcohol and the acid and the pH. And I know that the sweet spot for me with respect to that is different than it is for other winemakers. Mm -hmm. So again, that's kind of like me inserting my style. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the ways. Mm -hmm. The coopers that I choose, the barrels, mm -hmm. definitely what I like, what I don't like, what I'm willing to try, what I'm not willing to try. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You also talked earlier about, about uh, Lynn Pinarash's story and being taken seriously as a woman in the wine industry. So tell me about your experience as a woman in the wine industry, uh, especially an educated woman in the wine industry and, and what it's been like being part of the Oregon wine industry. Well, to be perfectly honest, I have, I'm, I'm kind of under the radar. Um, I just keep my head down and make my art. It's interesting, I, I sometimes feel like I probably should be putting it out there more. Maybe I should be networking more. Mm -hmm. But like I said, it's just, it's not part of my DNA. It's just not, I'm not built for that. Mm -hmm. um, and so the older I get and the more I do this, the more I kind of let go of that need to be out there. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll say that, you know, during the early part of my journey, when I was really getting the education, I really found nothing but support and respect. Um, there have been a couple of times when I've been in situations where I've been maybe presenting speaking about something and there have been a couple of male winemakers who have been just rude and dismissive but I kind of put that down to them you know mm. I've realized that that's kind of how they are to everybody so I don't take it personally um, I'm, I'm my experience may be very different had I been more out there representing in different ways, like on the Oregon Wine Board or part of the Willamette Valley Wineries Association. Mm -hmm. And I definitely have my, my moments where I think I should. But I'm really busy doing what I do. And this time of year when things are quiet enough for me to really consider doing something like that, I'd much rather be in my garden. It's almost like this is the time, this is when I'm, this is a time of year for me to recharge. Mm -hmm. And I, I work really hard at the winemaking and I always make myself available to my clients. Mm. And I think that I'm a little bit of a delicate flower and so I think I need my downtime. It's. I mean, again, it's interesting. You know, I came, I came into the industry. I was in my early 30s. And as you 
get older and gain experience and maturity, your priorities shift. Mm -hmm. And for me, with respect to the winemaking, it has always been about quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's kind of how I feel about my interaction with the industry. Mm -hmm. It's about quality over quantity. So tell me about what you've seen change in the Oregon wine industry since you became a part of it. You're about 20 years or so in now to the industry. So what is what has changed by the Oregon in addition to just pure size obviously. Right. What else what else about it, the industry has changed? I would say one of the things that I'm kind of on the fence about. Well, okay. I would say that the single most positive excellent thing is that the quality has really improved. Mm -hmm. um, when I started in 98, there was still a lot of question about can Oregon do it? You know, there was still a lot of mediocre white wine and Pinot Noir. It's been amazing to see the resurgence of Chardonnay. In my mind, it always stood to reason that Chardonnay is something that should do really, really well here. Mm -hmm. but the story goes they didn't plant the right clone and so we kind of took it on the chin for you know with chardonnay for a long time but now we're definitely producing world-class chardonnay and it's great to see the number of chardonnays on the market mm -hmm. um i do become a little concerned about the mass produced wines i do think that you get what you pay for and I feel like there are some $18 bottle Pinot Noirs out there that say Willamette Valley that may not have come from the Willamette Valley that will make you not feel great the next day. <laughs> and, you know, those wines concern me a little bit just because a rising tide lifts all boats. And I don't feel that those wines are necessarily representative of the best that we can do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they're out there getting us attention. Mm -hmm. People are buying them. Mm -hmm. And if they even like them remotely, it might bring them here. Mm -hmm. um, one, of the, one of the changes that I've seen that frustrates me is um, trying to get a small brand like Mad Violets into the Portland restaurant scene mm -hmm. is very challenging. And the thing that I keep hearing, I heard it from, I've heard it from distributors and I've heard it from my peers, is the, the Psalms are bored with Oregon Pinot Noir. What funky, weird, nasty thing do you have? I'd like to try that. Hmm. Which frustrates me because the reason that tourism is doing so well is because of Oregon Pinot Noir. Hmm. And so I don't know why you would cut off your nose to spite your face. Mm -hmm. um, that's not stopping us, though. I mean, we're still going to make it. Mm -hmm. We're still <laughs> going to put it out there. But that, that's something that I'm hoping changes. I don't know that it will. I think it'll be a while. Um, the other thing, when I said I was on the, I mentioned earlier about being on the fence, 
the, um, the kind of California land grabbing that's happening, mm -hmm. it has me a little concerned. Simply because we don't want to be the next Napa, even though they're already calling us that. And also, we don't want we don't want California owning all of Oregon. But again, there is the the plus side that they are they're bringing us great press. And if California is interested in Oregon, we must be doing something right. So it's not all bad, but we don't want to become, you know, just this giant corporation that is one thing. Mm -hmm. So hopefully the, the smaller brands can hang in there and keep going strong. Um, it's interesting, I know that Willamette Valley Vineyards has been buying a lot of land mm -hmm. all over. And it, what's, what's interesting to me is I'm really glad that it's an Oregon brand that's doing it, but then I wonder how are they <laughs> how are they doing? What do they know that we don't? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's kind of what I'm seeing. Those kind of shifts. Um, there was a time, and I think this has changed somewhat, but this could just be me being naive. Uh, there was a time when we were seeing a lot of cherry orchards and hazelnut orchards being ripped out and planted to grapes. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I moved here. I took comfort in the fact that it's not all suitable for wine grapes, mm -hmm. so it will never become a monoculture. Mm -hmm. And it did seem like for a while there, we were headed headlong into this monoculture. Mm -hmm. But I think hopefully what's happened is enough people got burned by that, that the word got out that you need to do a little more due diligence and mm -hmm. maybe bring in a vineyard manager before you tear everything out to see, maybe test the soils, maybe you know, what's your elevation, what's your frost protection or, you know, any, any of those issues that it seems like at some point it, that wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that trend has shifted a little bit and people are being a little smarter and I am seeing more hazelnuts being put in and so that's, you know, that fear has been allayed a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. but you know, change is going to happen. Mm -hmm. I remember the first two years I moved here, I kept apologizing because people would say, where'd you move here from? And I'd say, Southern California, I'm sorry. Because everybody was moving from Southern California, mm -hmm. you know, and so. They still are. They still are. And so, you know, I'm part of the change. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think I've brought some good. <laughs> I've tried anyway. <laughs> So, you know, you got to share the wealth a little bit. Not be so dogmatic. And that's, that's what I love about winemaking. Keeps you from being dogmatic. Yeah, you can't be so dogmatic. You really have to stay flexible. Sure. Yeah, because you can't, you can't do the same thing every year and expect the same result mm -hmm. because you're not necessarily getting the same fruit every year. So many things happen during the grow growing season. And you know, it's kind of like, every year I refer to it as the baby's coming. And you don't know when the baby's gonna come. You know, you just gotta, you have to wait until the baby's ready to come. And it's like that. 
with the fruit. You just got to wait. And then you got to bring it in immediately. Please, Sterling. <laughs> I will say, one of the smartest things I ever did was marry my vineyard manager. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Good decision. Good yes. Decision. <laughs> Are you, you doing okay in the sunshine mm -hmm. there? Okay. Does she look okay on camera? Are we losing light? Are we doing okay? We're almost wrapped up. I just want to make sure we don't get wash you out here on the camera. You happy with it, Kiana? Okay, cool. So on that note, what do you see as you look ahead for Oregon wine in the next, say, 10 years? I think it's going to continue to grow. I think that we're still going to see a lot of um, outside resources coming in, more French, more California, um, maybe even China. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're big on the wine. Mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping that it just stays on the on the upswing that it has been. Mm -hmm. And I think that people will continue to do the best they can. I think it's just going to continue to improve. At least that's that's my my goal. You know, just to keep getting better at what I'm doing. But I never want to get so big that I uh, lose sight and lose the joy. So let's talk about that. What's the future then for KK Wine Co. and for Mad Violets and for everything else here you're working on right now? I think I'm going to hold steady. I think um, I'm back down to about 100 tons. And that's perfect for me. It's a great amount. You know, it's 6,000 cases. Mm -hmm. It's great, and that's spread out among six clients. I'm not really looking to get huge. I have some clients who want to continue to grow, and I'm in full support of that. But I don't, you know, I'd much rather continue to make wine for the six brands that I'm making wine for than, and to have that grow to 200 tons than to make wine for 10 brands. Mm -hmm. And what advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the Oregon wine industry today? I would say, follow my lead. I would say, work harvest. I tell everybody that. If you work harvest and you still want to do this at the end of a harvest internship, then keep going. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that it's really important to spend a year in the vineyard. You, I learned so much. But I also, I have to say that every time I walk the vineyard with Sterling now, I always learn something, which is so great. Um, I would also say work a harvest abroad. Mm -hmm. Get out of the country. Go someplace. If you want to make Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, go to the Holy Grail. Go to Burgundy. You know, if you're more interested in Bordeaux blends, or maybe you like Spanish varietals, or, mm -hmm. but definitely kind of, go to the source, go to the motherland, so to speak, mm -hmm. and experience it there, because there's so much to learn and see. It just expands. I mean, travel is so essential, I think, to education. Mm -hmm. um, I would also recommend getting a degree. Mm -hmm. For me, it takes the guesswork out. I, I feel like I enjoy what I'm doing so much more 
because I understand the science behind it. And so little things don't freak me out. <laughs> sure. It's, it's, a, it's tremendous. It's a great tool to have. Yeah, so, you know, that's what I mean by following my lead. <laughs> I just really feel like the steps that I took to get here were the right steps. They were definitely the right steps for me. Mm -hmm. Does have anything? Okay. So with all the questions that I have for you today, uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover that we should have? Not that I can think of. Okay. I know Sterling mentioned he talked about the other Kelly, mm -hmm. like Kelly Fox, now mm -hmm. Fox, yeah, so. Covered. He covered that. Covered that in <laughs> detail, much, much detail, as, as always Sterling could. You know, I, I really have to watch his presentation. <laughs> I learned a lot, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic. Well, yes, yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, for your thoughts and answers, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.